Hey, this is Evan Phillips from Anchorage, Alaska. You're listening to The Fern Line. Alaska, the highest concentration of big, remote mountains in North America. For generations, a unique group of climbers have tested themselves in these vast alpine arenas. The Chugach, St. Elias, the Hayes, Neocola, the Kachatnas, the Revelations. Their stories are etched on high alpine walls. Their visions follow lines of cold gray ice. What inspires them? What makes them come back? Who survives? Who suffers? These are the stories we'll tell on season one of the Fern Line. Hey friends, I'm Evan Phillips, and you're listening to The Fern Line, a podcast about the lives of mountain climbers. On season one, I'll chat with alpinists and other outdoor enthusiasts who are pushing the limits of what's possible in Alaska's mountains. My goal is to have meaningful conversations with extraordinary people, folks who choose to live full-value lifestyles in one of the most beautiful and wild regions on the planet. So grab your favorite beverage and get cozy on your couch or camp chair and settle in for the next hour on this episode of The Fern Line. On today's episode, we'll get to know Alaskan alpinist Charlie Cicera. Charlie's had a lengthy climbing career that spans 30-plus years and includes many bold and visionary ascents on Alaska's mountains. His lead role in the rescue of his partner, Jack Tackle, from the north face of Mount Augusta in 2001 is the stuff of legends and epitomizes the characteristics of the true alpinist. Commitment. Loyalty. Trust. But how did Charlie get to that point? What experiences shaped him and developed him into the climber and person he became? How far was he willing to push himself in the mountains and at what cost? These were some of the questions I had when we sat down to talk in October 2016. We started by discussing Charlie's inspirations as a kid and how he first got into climbing. My uncle and my grandfather, and part of the time my dad were linemen. They were going out on these jobs climbing poles, and so I imitated them. But um, we had a lodge with, um, that had 
was made out of log. And so I would take a hammer and 16 penny nails and nail my way up these logs cool. and string wire <laughs> in the house when I was this little tyke, you know, four <laughs> or five years old. So I spent all this time climbing, imitating them climbing on the building. And we had dog, a dog team and stuff. So I was always outside and going on stuff. So it was, it was, um, the, actually it was probably driving back from in back into Anchorage and seeing Pioneer Peak and saying, you know, you know, I, I, I want that, you yeah. know, <laughs> I want that, you so, know. So there was, you definitely did have like a time, like as a team where you, where you kind of made that connection that, whoa, there's like big mountains around here. Yeah. Lots of adventure. Yeah, right. Yeah. But there wasn't anybody to participate with. So we just, we just went, we didn't, we didn't know anything. We just went. It was, but in the, what interrupted that was my dad ran for, um, uh, lieutenant governor and didn't win and he was kind of just got needed a change and he still had connections in the states and so I was on this also in this path I wanted to play football and thought I was going to be something special and so we moved to Florida and I went and played football in in Florida and had this other life which was around sailing and and you know uh, diving and uh and football and then at the end of high school went to florida state walked on at, at florida state but it didn't it didn't work out and um and then it was back in alaska right after that time they finally was able to do you know have the expression of you know climbing but actually the first technical climb i ever did was in south georgia in um Yona Mountain. It's an it's an old uh, ranger training facility, and it's a, it's the southern tip of the Appalachians. This little uh, granite bath lift down there. Huh. So, uh, so was it after college? Yeah, it was actually in college that this friend this I met this guy, and it's, and he says, yeah, I've done some climbing, and I wanted to do it, and you know there was, but there was no expression of it, no way to do it, and so um, he had this Volkswagen bus from up here that I, I had bought I had worked on the pipeline and um, I basically six months straight on the pipeline that paid for the college but I had this Volkswagen bus with studs on the rear wheel and it was down there in Florida with these studs on the on the you know stud snow tires and we um, went up in the winter up into Georgia to the Siona mountain and he says you know I've got couple carabiners and we bought some rope and we repelled you know it was really uh, totally lame and and um you know but we were that it was totally hooked in that experience yeah yeah it yeah. was fun cool um so talk about the transition from first like getting into doing you know doing yeah. your first kind of roped technical stuff and then to you know what was that progression like well it was the only thing in the world that mattered, it was, I just wanted it so badly that, um, and there wasn't anybody to learn, so we just went. And it was and most of the time, what the consequence was that around here is that we would climb, you could, if you could climb it, you could lead it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and so, okay. and I, 
And it was really, and I, and it was down there. There, there wasn't any hangdog in. Well, we didn't know anything, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. And so, I've got actually have a photograph of my very first technical lead, and I was, and I, I was in Southern California, and I, and I went to this shop and bought this kit. A used kit, you know, it was just all these chalks and everything. And I drug it around with me for at least a year and drug it all the way to Europe. And I'm in Wales, and my girlfriend and I were in Wales in Snowden. And I said, I'm going to go rock climbing in my first technical rock pitch. And there's a photograph of me about 60, 70 feet up this thing of no consequence with this giant rack and nothing in <laughs> because nothing nothing is in the rock you know it's like it's this yeah. perfect huge rack yeah. but not a thing single yeah. thing it was i didn't it's like i didn't need it what was yeah. the big deal yeah. well mostly because i didn't know anything but the um the transition um because there was no mentoring there wasn't anybody to learn from we just went from this perspective we played outside as kids um and in alaska you know with snow machines and camping and just we just were outside all the time so it was it was really it wasn't a big deal to be out or to be cold or to be playing in the snow and things like that and so when the department of transportation um and it was like 79, 78 or 79, they blasted the road down to, uh, on, on the highway and opened up that ice climb that's now called Roadside Attraction. Um, and we just waited and waited for it to freeze. We had no idea what was going to happen. We just waited. We, we saw the seeps coming down. Yeah. And we, th- we yeah. would read enough. And so we bought some ice tools and we waited it no to shit. freeze. Wow. And so we tried a couple times before it was thick enough to climb it. And we finally, and it was, it was Vern Tejas and Brian Kennard and I, we, you know, we had this amazing siege of this 110 feet of yeah. thing, right? Yeah. And, uh, and, and then we did that. And then I went away and helped my dad bring a sailboat from Miami through the canal up to San Diego and then I came back, and then um, I did this little scrappy little climb up on suicides, and then we decided to go to Deborah and try this new route. Okay, <laughs> so it was yeah. because it's like, yeah. that's oh yeah, we could do that. Then we could do this. So what? So uh, it was eighty. That was nineteen eighty. Yeah. Okay. So two thoughts. Like <laughs> roadside attraction. It's interesting because that's probably one of the first grade four ice climbs I, I ever did. And, yeah. and I just remember it being a, a big deal. It was a very big deal. Yeah. 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 And it's because it's, it, it's scary because there's not a, some alluvial fan at the bottom that you're going to fall. You can, you know, kind of catch yourself with, you're going to hit the flat asphalt. Yeah. And, and you can, there's also the, the, the issue of knocking down ice onto vehicles. And, oh yeah. Which has happened right. many times. It's a lot. <laughs> okay so you did roadside attraction and then you did a scrappy route on one of the suicides yeah and then um was it like a like a technical climb yeah yeah but um we didn't weren't able to finish it because it was just too hard and uh and then then uh, about a month later we went to deborah and climbed the west face to the northwest ridge and 
got way, 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 way up there. And, and, and right at the height of it, my dad and my mom and my brother flew by in a little uh, piper. And it was, it was a trip. Were you able to go to the top? No, we, I, I took a big whipper off the, um, the ridge line and like fell through a cornice. It just broke off, broke and uh, slid down, you know, and stopped below the, um, the face. And then uh, that pretty much scared us to death. So we, just, yeah. so we wrapped the, the face. So you climbed the west face, basically. Yeah, yeah. Up to the up to the just below the summit, pretty much. Pretty much, but it. I mean, we missed it by an, enough that you say it wasn't even close. Yeah. <laughs> After that, I was in um, finished my college in Western Washington, and there it was you know learning the rock climb in Washington, Squamish, and and. Uh, you know, they were, there was nothing of any particular note other than the fact that it was when I, I actually learned to rock climb. Okay. Um, and what were, where were some of the places you were climbing down in Washington? Uh, up at Squamish and, um, you know, did some, an aid climb up there, first aid climb, and the smoke bluffs. And um, I think the first thing we did was uh, soloed the um, north face of Shucks and, um and the hardest part there was the woods and the, all the broke, the timber yeah. laying down, you know, and the walking in, that kind of stuff. And then, you know, climbed um, Mount Stewart in the winter and and um, we're in Leavenworth and and um, and Index and those kinds of places. And, um, you know, I I really enjoyed it, but I really ultimately wasn't all that good at it, but had, you know, a lot of fun. Yeah, your legs were too big. <laughs> they were, they were too big. <laughs> Arms are too small. Legs are too big. Um, so, did you have any like heroes like, well, back then? There were some, and the one that my aunt gave me uh, uh, the book, um, the last step, or I think it was about K two, and so because they were, it was in that the Northwest people and such, and so it was. The, in the first, it was those group. You know, it was Roskelly and and uh, um, and Wickwire and and that and that group of people that were there. And my uncle um, was um, introduced me to Jim Wickwire, and so we had lunch. And it was in that time frame, and I was you know so eager to go. I, I want to yeah. go. I want to go. I want to go. And he, uh, you know, and he was being cool, and he'd been to K two, and you know, and he was just just so cool <laughs> and and i just was like you know found and i want to go and he, I, I how do i go i want to go can i go either can i go next get a go yeah. and he and he goes well you got to climb something kid you know and you know it's like kind of put me off and then and then the next year i did the west rib in the winter and i called jim and I said, what about that and he goes well, you did what but he had the thing was that jim i saw the kind of climbs he was doing and it was interesting is there was he you know we were built about the same and he he had uh, i could see the kind of roots they were doing and i kind of liked them but then they were but i also realized pretty soon that what his his choices were really dangerous and so i like and i kind of saw that later a lot of objective hazard yeah and it was not like eh, i gotta and i had to i had to learn it myself yeah but ultimately they were not good roots to be doing
Every alpinist has a turning point in his or her career. This usually comes down to learning how much you're really willing to commit. For Charlie, that point came in 1983, when he and a small group of friends set out to make the first winter ascent of Denali's West Rib. After two weeks of acclimatizing and slowly working up the mountain in 40 below temperatures, Charlie and his partner, Robert Frank, made the summit. But tragedy struck on the way down when Robert, most likely exhausted from the summit push, slipped and fell, tumbling thousands of feet down the mountain to his death. I asked Charlie to talk about the climb and how he dealt with losing a friend in the mountains. Well, we were working construction, and the, so there wasn't that much work in the winter, so it was, that's when we climbed. It wasn't a big leap, and actually the, what preceded it was a notion. So I, I had this th thought, you know, I was going to, like when you're a kid, you know, you're going to be an Olympic champion. Well, I want to be this big climber guy. So my plan that year was two routes in the winter. One was a, a north face of Moffat. Um, and there was a big ice face on there and and a new route on Denali in the winter. And and that was the that was the perspective, right? That was the, the objective. Yeah. <laughs> you know, thinking and talking big. And so uh we were gonna go to um Denali first and then to Moffat. And I wrote and got sp some sponsorships, got Marmot gave us some tents, those little Taku tents. And so the but the actual leap to climbing in, in there in the winter was not it, it wasn't did we weren't fearful of it or that it was scary or or that it was a big leap it was just an extension of running around in the winter in the Chugach and just um, playing right yeah. it was just how we lived and so and there we couldn't find um, we didn't know anything about the mountain. We, we couldn't find the park service, didn't know that they had closed down in the summer. And so we didn't ever register. We just went up there. Wow. And um, there was this route between the West Rib and the um, Buttress. It's, it, it's, it's sort of a, um, a diamond-shaped sh um, uh, face that's really an S-shaped cool, uh, cool R. It's about 5,000-foot cool R or something that that comes up and joins the West Rib at about 15,000. And so we wanted to do that and then join the Rib and go up. But when uh, we got there, we realized it was over our capacity to do it. And we switched to the Rib. But none of us had ever been to Denali before. We didn't know anything about the West Buttress or how to get down it. So we climbed the Rib as we progressed up the mountain. And after, about, after the snow domes, we just put the rope away. And so we did, to get down, it was we had to down climb the route as opposed to going to the West Buttress because we didn't know any, we didn't have, have any idea what it was about. So, um, but we, you know, we had an immense amount of food and just we like for the on the first it took us two weeks before we started the route, and we were skiing around there, and the because um, we we're all framing outside and working outside we were pretty robust and you know it's it 40 below zero and I, and I wore on just those um, yellow monkey face um, cotton work gloves 
for two weeks wow. at 40 below and it was and it was because we were eating so much yeah. we we're just like these little radiators yeah. and we had pans of lasagna yeah <laughs> you know we just drove yeah. we just we had yeah. massive amount of food yeah. um so who all was on that team it was um uh robert frank he was 38 i was 26 and then um steve teller was about the same age as i and chris rayback and were these all dudes you were working with? Yeah, they were um, geologists. Okay. As I'd worked for um, Anaconda when we were they're doing the exploration work in Alaska, and that was one of the. That's how I got to know those guys. And Steve was uh, from Montana, and it was part of that group uh, that actually tackle was associated with out of Bozeman and such in the, in the late seventies. So he was a more accomplished ice climber than the rest of us and uh, Chris was just I don't remember what his background was but he was just friend and enthusiastic yeah. and so like how how'd the trip go like up to the point where well, you and Robert who went for the summit yeah by you so the other two didn't go well everybody left sort of independently at night because it just got done eating and and we were sort of actually on the edge of the south face because the route that we ended up climbing was sort of to the right of the rib um and chris had taken a fall um at the top of the coolar um because it was all blue ice there was no snow you know on this thing and uh he he took a fall and twisted his ankle pretty badly and so he was not really up for the big you know yeah. for the, that day and he so he chose to stay and then so um um steve and i and Robert took off, and we we probably left within an hour or so of each other, and it, we were just soloing up there, and so we climbed it through the night, through the you know early light, and then about eighteen or nineteen thousand. Um, Steve was having trouble with altitude. He decided to turn around, and then Robert and I continued up to the you know football field and across and over to the summit. So, so. Um... How'd you guys feel when you got to the top? Um, I would say... Uh, I mean, this is the first time that probably both of you had been to the top of Denali. Would none of us had ever been there. Yeah, so... Yeah. Um, there, there, there wasn't really... It was sort of like uh, trepidation. Uh, you know, there was, okay, now let's pay attention, you know, and, and so, so you, you knew it was a serious situation. Oh, totally. You know, it was, it wasn't, it wasn't really scared, but it was like, you know, it yeah. was, there was, there was a, even a discussion whether or not we should go to the summit yeah. because you're up to the top of the rib and you're, you're going, yeah, well, there's a flat area. That's yeah. good enough. But we, we walked over, you know, to that yeah. and, uh, the, um, and what the conditions were was, ice and grapple and strategy that is on the wall and we're following the resistant climbing the resistant plates of strategy mm -hmm. you know and it would be so you get to an edge of it and there all of a sudden it would be this you know unconsolidated grapple and and just you know sort of loose snow ice that doesn't it's not really connected right yeah. and then and then an ice yeah. layer so it's just really variable conditions yeah so we're staying out on the hard snow as much as it could and then and we you know pretty early on you know on the route realized it was 
easier to climb with one tool than two because it takes less energy. And, you know, they were just... So I think that he broke through that edge and slipped to another... onto that that dry snow and then hit me in the chest, and that's when the accident... So, I mean, where did that accident happen? Do you remember? Um, it's, It's, you know, like, I think it's like... 193 or what what was just it's just below a couple hundred feet below the uh, the edge the summit ridge well it's not really summits it's the plateau edge okay you're coming back down Uh, and and so and and then when he hit me i went backwards over and um under my back and then was able to self-arrest um and it was really really violent and very very fast and it was and it, you know, I was sort of in retrospect, I was thankful for playing football because it was all about this super rea- fast reaction yeah. and strength. So, um, I mean, I can imagine that that must have been like a pretty devastating experience. I mean, at, at the well, at the time, like, were you what were you going through when that happened? It's a well, um, so there's the violence of the of stopping right and in in the stopping um you know it's it's surreal because like well crampons flying through the air and just grabbed the crampon before it got away from me and you know so this there's this there's the okay controlling it but then once i was sort of squared away saw robert tumbling uh then you know it was return to the work of, you know, sort of getting myself oriented to put the crampons back on, on the slope, and then, you know, continue down. And it was, um, you know, I would see patches of blood, and then I finally found a piece of bone. uh, And the oddest thing was he had a Nikon, and the body, the camera lens was broken off, and the body of the camera was sitting on a sun cup on a 45 degree slope. Why it stood stopped there is the weirdest thing, but it was out in this open face. And I, but the part, the most emotional experience was uh, finding um, a Dockstein glove, not the mitten, but the glove, because it was in the shape of this my his hand, right, and it just that short amount of time that person was there and because that was the you know a human expression of the, the glove right there's all there's a human right and that's not confused with anything else so and i just uh you know i, c- I continued to climb down and finally got to our camp at 172 and uh you know and they said you know they looked at me and said, what happened? So I told them that Robert was gone. And then, then it was, they admitted they heard him slide by. Because the, it's, the tent was only within maybe tens of feet of the fall line. And, uh, and then it was, a, you know, a breakdown. Everyone broke down and cried. And, but there was really not, a, there was, the weather was bad. You know, they'd come in, and so we couldn't really move. So we spent a, se- a second day there, and then the the next day we continued down, the um, and tried to stay, tried to follow the fall line, and we finally some place near the um, 
where the crevasses started to show up, we found a place where likely he had, you know, come to rest in one of the big crevasses above the south face. And then we climbed back to the rib, but we, we, didn't, we never did see him. The, the emotional part was that it was, I would have dreams for a year. I had dreams where he'd come back and go, well, how come you didn't come get me? Right, so the guilt dreams, and it was about it was almost a year later that it was in a dream that he said, you know, gave me permission to move on, which was, you know, you know, I'm dead. Come on, it's okay, you can accept it. And you know, and then that was the last that was the last dream I had where he, you know, I had that vision of his communication. Following his experience on the West Rib, Charlie embarked on a path that would put alpinism as the driving force in his life. After nearly succeeding on the West Pillar of Makalu in 1984, Charlie turned his attention back to Alaska. But after another brush with death on Mount Johnson in 1987, Charlie began to re-examine his motives and refine his style. Over time, Charlie learned that for him, alpinism was more than just a sport. It was a creative outlet, a means of self-expression. Moving over the purest, most beautiful line was the ultimate goal. This vision was realized in 1997, when Charlie and his longtime partner Carlos Bueller made the first ascent of the 8,000-foot east face of University Peak in the Wrangell St. Elias. As before, it was about the line, and we had I'd flown past it, and I had a video uh, that w- I shot with Paul in probably '89 or '90 or something or someplace in there that went and s- saw this this particular line, and um, and I got back with Carlos doing roots, and we were trying some roots in the Tuarpies and uh, made the first ascent of Miller and, and these, a couple of these other big waterfalls in the, uh, in the Chitna Valley. And it was, it was probably first time that I saw it with Carlos was 95 or, or 96 or 95, I think. And so it was 97. It was after one of these, um, you know, sort of family adventures out there that the, the weather and the things came together to try it. And Paul landed us, and we packed um, four days of food and fuel. And, um, you know, we had been, our, our experience together, we did, we did, we climbed really well together. And it, um, when there's more than two, then it got complicated because Carlos was a complicated guy. But it was, it was a time when, you know, there, was, there, were fair, there weren't that many Americans that would climb with him because he was just, he was just kind of, a con, he was a complicated person, you know, and uh, you know he was he was real successful with the Russians and and the Spanish, 
and um, European, other European climbers, but he wasn't that successful with Americans. And, you know, he, he was different. Um, and, but somehow he and I um, did well together. And so we landed and then skied up and did a, and we, what we used to do was try to get a measure, or try to shorten the mountain by getting a measure of it, by going up and booting up as high as we could with no gear and see what it felt like. And so we, so we went up about 1,500 feet and made a stash and came back down. And then the next day we got up and we, you know, we had very, very little. When the, the style of climbing that we did at that time was we, were, we weren't that fast, but we didn't carry any weight. And we, we just never really, we really didn't really stop. Um, per se, and we we pitched more than they do now, um, which means you know we were blaying the pitches, and I think on that route there was like fifty or fifty-five pitches or something like that, and so, um, but it was more it was more deliberate, less gear, more deliberate. So we took six eye screws, you know, like six pins, and six chocks, and uh, four days of food and fuel, and you know, no helmets. And so it was relatively light, um, the gear and such, but tenuous, very, very steep climbing, um, and, you know, uh, a lot of, you know, like class three and class four water ice, you know, for thousands of feet, that yeah, kind of thing. Basically like am amazing. <laughs> yeah, like, like amazing. Yeah. yeah, and we and what was so stunning was, so the first day... We so we made the cache, came back down, came, went back up, and it snowed, and then we were like, "Well, it's over. You know, this is too. This is dumb. It's it's going to be over." So let's. So we sat there and ate for a day, and then that night it stopped snowing, and the next morning it was crystal clear and not a breath of wind. And so like, well, what do you think? Shall we leave? Shall we go? You know, and we took off and. It was stunningly beautiful and quiet and not a breath of wind for three days. As we climbed this thing, this tip, 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 you know, and we're on this arete um, about the third or fourth day that had was covered with these feathers of beautiful powder of feathers. And then they were, you know, they, they start to dry out and it's this big, you know, um, um, this beautiful snow that was just as light as it could ever be, but it's just suspended and there's no nothing. So you're just climbing, but no stress on weather or anything like that. And then um, just, and what the crux of the, we didn't really know about, there was several of them, but the last particular crux was going through the ice cliff, the top and it had, you know, a couple pitches of boilerplate ice and, you know, like grade four with a pack and, you know, storm. So we got, it, it gave us a little sting at the top. Yeah. But what, one of the things that gave us a lot of confidence is we heard Paul flying over the tops. We knew it wasn't, it was just a localized storm versus something yeah. bigger. Yeah. Which yeah. is, which is, uh, that's a good thing to realize when you're in that situation. <laughs> like, oh, okay, well. Yeah. And so, you so know. So on that climb, I mean, I actually remember, you know, this was, that was like really kind of when I really was get, kind of yeah. getting into climbing. I was probably like 21, 22 mm -hmm. when you did that. And 
I remember chatting with you at, mm-hmm. at some point in time afterwards and you just talking about a couple pitches on that route. Mm-hmm. It was just perfect. They were. Perfect alpine climbing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I remember you describing being in a in a book. Yeah. There was this one we we <laughs> it was funny because we came out we came off the left hand side of this arete and back to the arete and made these really complicated moves through these towers. And uh it was funny because Carlos was he would go, Why was that so easy for you? you know? <laughs> and he goes <laughs> You know, I've been climbing with Carl and on, down there at, on Ptarmigan or whatever it was, you know, something smart-ass like that. But it was fun. And and then the this this transition from these towers was, like you said, it was just an, a, an open book to wide enough for your, the stem that's on the top of a, a ret. So an, an open book on the top of a ret. Yeah. And you just stem... Uh, you know, with thousands of feet on either side yeah. and, you know, and have that, have that, you know, like get my picture right now. Cause yeah. this is really sexy stuff. Basically you know? <laughs> the kind, they're the kinds of like, uh, positions and like, yeah. pitches that you, you, you dream about them. Right. And exactly. then you're there and you're like, Oh my God, this is, this is really happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How lucky <laughs> it was, you know, it was a culmination of the relationship and, and the, and the partnership I had with Carlos and the things I had learned from him over the years about the the discipline of the work and the approach to it and real subtle small things, and and then you know the line, the you know how pretty that line was, but um, you know the other interesting thing that I learned technically on that climb on the way down was down climbing the North Ridge, um, uh, you I look I look backwards to navigate. So I would look back up the mountain to see where I would put myself for that position and then project it below me because you can't see down those snowy Mm -hmm. edges. And so you could see, you could look, you could make a navigating decision looking upwards, but you couldn't look it down. And so I I put the route back together looking backwards to to get off of it. And there's and we and we used, used to, you know like just use stuff sacks to repel off of. In my conversation with Charlie, a recurring theme was the loyalty he felt towards his partners. Nowhere was this more evident than on a 2001 attempt on the north face of Mount Augusta with Jack Tackle. Near the end of their first day of climbing, Tackle was struck by a large rock, rendering him paralyzed on the side of the peak, 50 miles from the nearest road. In what's become a legendary rescue in mountaineering circles, Charlie was able to secure Jack on the mountain, repel the face, and cross the glacier alone to the team's tent, where a satellite phone was cached. 30 hours later, and against all odds, Tackle was plucked safely off the peak by the 210th Mountain Rescue and airlifted to a hospital in Anchorage where he started his recovery. I asked Charlie to talk about his relationship with Jack 
and the emotions he felt during and after the experience on Augusta. Well, it was the house that we had on H Street was a conduit for people to go to the range. And so people came through and I got to meet a lot of people, um, a lot of Europeans and, you know, and Dackel was part of that universe. And so, you know, he's a, he's a really dear person. Everybody loves him and, you know, me included. And so you just, you want to be with him. Right. And, um, so he had this, we were friends, and he went and had the the episode of Guillaume Beret, and uh, we you know almost died from that. And you know, I stayed in contact with him, and you know, and gave you know basically, yeah, well, when you get better, we'll do something. And so that was the hope of getting better. And Augusta was that um, the coming out from Guillaume Beret. So, and I found Augusta from a photograph from. Somebody locally, I, I may have been even Dave Hart, that was asking me about King Peak, and and I was giving him information on King, and then I saw in the background Augusta. I didn't say anything to him. I said, and I, and I closed that conversation with him, that's, and then went over and go, "What's that thing? I like that." That's classic. <laughs> and so just, and then I then I paid Claus to fly me over, and I shot, I photographed it in the winter. And, um, and then convinced Jack to go with me. We, we got to be, we, we had been really good friends, and, but there was also this um, code that is unspoken about um, your commitment to the other person to do whatever it takes, right? And you, you, it's one of those things that is... Um, that's there that you're hoping that the other person has, but you never want to actually express or have to deal with. Yeah. And so we, um, but it was, uh, you know, it was a big part of how Jack and I are, are wired or who we are. We didn't really know it until the, ex- the experience proves it. Right. Yeah. But we you sort of had this vision of yourself that you're going to be brave and loyal and, you know, like the Boy Scout sort of vision of the thing. And the interesting thing for me was that in in preparation for this one, I changed my training and I was powerlifting and I was the strongest I'd ever been as an adult. You know, I was, I was really, and you know, I was only like 42 or something. And, you know, so he had got his combination. It's the intersection of being physically capable of doing something and the experience, right? Okay. Now they're all come together. What are you going to do? Right. So, um, uh, and when we started the climb, um, I could see that I was, um, physically stronger than him, uh, in, in, in both endurance you know, and this physical, you know, capacity, but he was still, it was still capable, still doing it, still technically very, very adept, you know, but I was watching to see what was going on with him. And, um, you know, the climbing, you know, it was, it was hard enough, but it wasn't like super hard. And, uh, you know, for the most part, we climbed with the packs on. There was a couple of pitches we didn't have packs, but you know, we were 
were climate at a fairly high standard, but what happened was the temperature jumped and what started from like, I don't know, was 10 or 15 degrees at the bottom. And when the accident happened, it was probably 45. And it was an inversion that came in from the, uh, Canada, and you could smell the the forest fires wow. from Canada come across and hit the wall, and then the wall fall apart. When the accident occurred, was he was looking for a place we were going to stop and rehydrate and maybe take a nap or something. We were about halfway through what we thought was going to be the technical um, climbing of the route before we got to this arete that would take us up to the you know basically a snow ice arete to the summit. Okay. So, and then. He gets hit with like a, was it a rock or a block of snow? No, it's a rock. It was about the size of a briefcase. Yeah, and it hit him on like the back of the neck? Yeah, the head and back of the neck. So it broke his neck and busted his teeth out. Because I think he probably hit the rock on his face. So he lost some teeth and uh, he was bleeding in the head and and he was paralyzed. And uh, How long did it take you to figure out like how serious it was? Oh, it's immediately evident that this is really deadly serious because yeah. it's not, you know, the person's unconscious and he had, um, you know, he was paralyzed, yeah. so he couldn't move. And then, you know, and I was, had this shot, a pretty big shot of adrenaline running through me. So I, I, what was wild is I just, I just grabbed him by the chest and moved around with one arm. He weighed 180 pounds and just, yeah. you know, move yeah. him like a drag doll. But, um, you know, it was the concentrate, you know, one was, you know, get them, get them locked in, get them stable. And then it took, it was probably eight hours of work to go through that. Plus the conversation, it was actually Jack's permission to let me go because yeah. I was planning to lower him. So when he gave you permission to go try and get help, how did you feel? Guilty. Yeah. Because it was likely that he wasn't going to make it. Yeah. I mean, were you, were you in your mind? Did you guys talk about that? Oh yeah. Yeah, we did. And because, you know, it was, he, he said he couldn't do it, but you know, it was, it was too painful to move yeah. him and that kind of stuff. And I agreed with him because I could, you know, um, he was giving me an opportunity to live through this. Right. Yeah. by saying that yeah. because you know the you to lower and to do this whole thing you know 1500 feet off this glacier whatever it was you, you would meant you know rappelling down fixing an anchor jugging back up lowering jack you know so you have to do every pitch twice where the rocks are falling so you know and you're committed to one line you can't move laterally very much because of the weight right you how, how am i going to move them laterally yeah so you're committed to the line it's rocks are falling anchors are bad it'd probably kill us when you got ready to go when you guys decided that you were going to go for help mm-hmm. what was that conversation like oh it's heartbreaking um you know i i'm i'm sitting there with in my, I don't know why I had this in my head, but there's the speech that Caesar gives when they're going into battle. And he says, 
if we meet again, you know, we'll celebrate the day. If not, it was a party well spent, that one. And so, you know, it was really intense, you know. And, we, and what we said to each other was probably super simple, literally, because you can't actually speak these things in the moment, yeah. you know. Um, travel safe or something like that. You know, <laughs> you know, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. 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 So, you know, you know, but it's 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 a it's a monumental experience to let him go, right? And then, and like all these other things, the what the climbing is is you know how do you compartmentalize and move the work to something you can manage, right? Okay, I'm just dealing with this anchor. Nothing else, just this one. When this is good, then I can move to the next thing, and I can, you know. And so, there in the in the getting down, there was, you know, making Jack stable. Then there was getting off the rappel, getting to the skis, getting to the phone. So those were the pieces, right, of of it. But you couldn't, you know, you may not see the next one, yeah, ever. Yeah. So. When Jack got safely off the mountain, mm-hmm. uh, were were you there? Were you in the helicopter? Or no, no, I was, I was on the glacier in the fog. When did you see Jack again? About a week later. And where was that? In in I think in my house because he had he gotten out of the hospital by the time I got out of Canada. Yeah. So it, he he was staying at the house. What was your guys' meeting like after that? Ex- um. Well. I don't remember the meeting so much, but I know that there was a, the, the attachment was so intense that I, I had a hard time letting go of him, you know, even a week or two later. That's, that's the thing that was, it was an interesting, intense attachment. So what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you, you know, that kind of thing of just staying in contact with the person, right? So. It, it took a long time to, for either of us to let go of each other and the experience. In talking to Charlie about Jack and the experience on Augusta, I was reminded that some of the strongest relationships I've ever had were forged in the mountains. To know your partner has your back no matter what, that's a powerful thing. Since Augusta, Charlie's continued to climb in Alaska and abroad. He was co-founder of the Alaska Rock Gym and served as president to the American Alpine Club in 2012 and 13. Charlie says he's quote-unquote retired from alpine climbing, but I'm not sure I believe him, considering he was in the Alaska range last summer. Hoping to get a few more nuggets of wisdom, I asked Charlie what his upcoming plans were and what he sees in the future of Alaskan alpine climbing. I'd like to, um, I'd like to go to back to Europe and do long limestone routes and the either P 
Picos de Europa or the Dolomites or, you know, I, I love the movement and feeling, you know, that. And, uh, you know, I was a passable rock climber, you know, not a, a never been a great rock climber, but I love the movement and I want to climb those routes like that, you know, um, those big, long things and yeah. to, because it's, they're so fun. Have you have you seen like alpine climbing in particular in Alaska evolve? Oh, and change over yeah. the last thirty years. Well, if it, to, in Alaska to understand alpine climbing, you have to understand aviation and the progress that has happened because it's only through it's a sort of a this this relationship between the aviators and the climbers that has built climbing because if they've got better like Claus and, and Roderick and, and Geating and, all, and Sheldon, and all those people were allowed the access that wasn't, that wasn't capable of getting because you, you can't climb these really big technical routes. Um, they wouldn't be developed without the aviator being there. And so, you know, the old school, old, old school before we arrived was, you know, they were somehow skiing in or going over overland and that um and you're so they're more you you end up being more aggressive so there's technological the big ones is it's the there's training and the attitude you know there's sort of the progressions and the attitude what's possible and um so the tools changed they became better um and but right now I think the biggest thing that's changed it is the weather routing, and being able to understand the weather because if the weather is good, alpine climbing is easy, right? Because you just limit it. Easier. <laughs> it's easy. It's easier because it's not that technical. Mostly it's not that technical, but people are pushing the technical envelope because they've got they got more confidence in the weather. And uh, so with the weather routing, you know, you're losing taking. You can push the window of what's possible. Um, you know, it just that, that changes the completely changes the game. You know, like what Clint's doing did in out in the uh, Revelations, and and then John Kelly, and, uh, you know, and some of the routes he's done up in here uh, in the Chugach over the years, and then down in in off Juno in the ice fields, and so there are people. But there are less. There always been a, only a handful of people that would um, leave the, what is known, and that's what I liked about watching what you guys did. You know, when you had your run um, up here, because you were. That's the kind of things that were you were going. Trying to do wilderness adventure. Yeah. Climbing, yeah. You know exactly. Well, that maybe leads me into my next question: Is like, what's the future of Alaskan alpine climbing? Um, it's always been about the imagination. And so it's not being in it, you, you can't say what it is. It's someone coming up with a new approach to it, right? And a little thing, like little things like years ago, when Paul Claus was supporting these guys that were trying to parapen off of St. Elias, um, this guy left his partners from the top camp, got up there, and they happened to go out to take a leak or something, and they look up, and the guy... And, you know, hits the canopy and he takes off from St. Elias, but he hadn't told him he was leaving, right? He didn't tell him where he was going, 
and he flew to Icy Bay. And it, it fucking took him days to find the guy. Paul flying around, where you been? You might won't tell anybody. Wow. <laughs> so stuff like that. For somebody, there is inspiration or just the fucking balls to just let go, right? So, and then years ago, I bet these guys, these Hawaiians that were working, the electrician was working on the house. And I was trying to understand, you know, he said, oh, you ski a little bit? Yeah, I climb a little bit. Oh, you do this, you know, get in relate. And this guy is a snowboarder. But he's not a snow. He's not an Alaskan. He's Hawaiian. He's a surfer, and he came to Alaska for work. Saw the snowboarding thing. Started doing that, and they realized very quickly they hated walking up hills. So they they learned how to parachute, and they were up in hatchers in the late '80s, jumping out of airplanes with um, snowboards on. And, and taking these runs, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? And they were jumping. He said, when was the first time you tried it? And he goes, as soon as they got there, the first time they jumped out of an airplane with permission, with a, hel- with a parachute, was the first time they had it on their feet. Wow. Right? <laughs> so you don't even know what's going on, yeah. right? <laughs> it's, something, it's something like that. That's funny. Um. What what advice could you give, like you know, an aspiring Alaskan alpine climber? Like, what 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 advice could you give? Well, you know, you gotta you gotta be strong physically. You gotta you gotta do the work. You can't just be, you know, there your your natural athleticism takes you so long. So there's a you know, it's doing the work. Um, I, I would say take big leaps. Because in the leaps is where the big learning is, but it's the risk is high, and so, um, you know, I I want to see them come back and say, hey, you know, Evan, you know that route that you worked on for you know, ten years, I just soloed it, <laughs> you know, yeah. I want I want I want them to just chew it up, yeah. <laughs> you know, that makes sense. <laughs> there's there's also an understanding that sometimes it's just about the work. Right. Yeah. You know, and like the the thing that I've told recently is I after Garvey and Alex Logue died, I wrote to myself, said, what does it take to stay alive? And I came up with five reasons or five little things. There's athleticism, fitness, judgment executed in the moment, um, desire and luck. The answer to athleticism is you pick your parents. You, you either got it or you don't. You got to be an athlete, right, to do these things. The second one is you go to work to make yourself hard to kill. You know, you know it's in you, within your, you got to go to work. You got to be fit. You got to, you know, be strong. Judgment executed in the moment is hard to, it's sort of an experience of, it's a combination of experience and intuition, which is step left right now, yeah. right? No, put the blade right here, well, you know, sort of, a, which is is this sort of holistic view of where you're going of this whole peak, right? A lot of people only think about the route, not the descent, and the, you know the weather systems and all the whole piece, right? Then then there's the desire, which is super important, which is you know you just want to live so bad, right? You're gonna you're gonna bleed for it because people give up. 
and watch people give up. And then to all of those things go to minimizing luck, right? Because there is luck, but you don't want it to be dominant. <laughs> so that was how I looked at it. But do you think you've been lucky? Oh, fuck yeah. I'm the one of the luckiest guys you have <laughs> ever met. I am totally lucky. <laughs> there I was. Hey, thanks so much for hanging out with me today. I hope you enjoyed Charlie's stories as much as I did, and I hope you can apply some of his wisdom to your next adventure in the mountains. Don't forget to follow The Fern Line on social media outlets. And remember, you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast channel. You can also subscribe to the fernline.com email list, where I'll be sending out extra monthly content, including podcast outtakes, short stories, and interviews. And lastly, I write and record all of the music for the Fernline. If you dig the tunes you hear, you can check out more of my stuff on Spotify, Bandcamp, iTunes, or evanphillips.net. Until next time, I'm Evan Phillips, and this is the Fernline. Line.